2: Good morning and welcome to the last day of two thousand and twelve it 's been quite the year, and um, it 's been quite a journey today. I thought I would take us through some of um, sort of a safari through the past over the past hundred years of where conservation has been um, what it 's accomplished. Uh, where we are today, and perhaps where we're going. As we approach 2013, a lot of us, or any new year, a lot of us think about what are we going to do. We reach our New Year's resolutions, and we try to um, do things better. So as a global community and made up of individual communities and individuals, um, perhaps we can think about where we would like our world to go, um, especially in my uh view is where our wild world is going. Um, we've lost a lot of what's happened in our world, and uh, I'm just going to take us through a little journey of where we've been. It was in 1862 that Ferdinand Hayden first attempted the notion to turn Yellowstone into a national park. Uh, because of the explorations of many of the greats through uh what was the unknown west but it wasn't until 1872 that yellowstone was named as the world's first national park yellowstone covers a landmass of 3472 square miles through montana wyoming and idaho yet the native americans lived there for at least the previous 11000 years that brings us to a point of uh first peoples aboriginals and their part in conservation versus the model of conservation that has been instituted since, oh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, It was by the 1930s it had become pretty clear to just about everyone in the U.S. um, and the world that, except for, let's say, the ecologically blind, that our resources were certainly slipping Um, and thus the creation of national parks. It followed rather quickly from uh, that point on to setting aside more protected areas. Uh, The father of uh, conservation today uh, is Aldo Leopold, as many may know, and his fabulous book, The Sand County Almanac. But it was also Aldo Leopold that first defined the idea of what conservation needs to happen, which is a land ethic, uh, although Leopold went about trying to define what a land ethic was. Um, as he said in uh, his write-up in 1948, there is a clear tendency in American conservation to relegate to government all necessary jobs that private landowners fail to perform. Government ownership, operation subsidy, or regulation is now widely prevalent in foresty range management, soil and watershed management, park and wilderness conservation, and fisheries management and migratory bird management. Nevertheless, the question arises, what is the ultimate magnitude of this enterprise? At what point will governmental conservation, like the Mastodon, become handicapped by its own dimensions? The answer, if there is any, seems to be in a land ethic or some other force. So let's try and talk about what a land ethic is. Um, It's an ethic of understanding of stewardship, that what we live on, this planet, and where we live, our habitat, and that which provides us the resources we need to survive, should be taken care of by all, by the public, by the common good. Uh, it was taken pretty much as a common sense that it, you had to take care of your lands the ranchers the um the farmers uh up to let's say industrialization in the post world war 2 where we started consolidating our production into concentrated food lots and uh, monoculture agriculture but prior to that uh we were in here in the US we were dependent upon the farmers the ranchers uh for our food sources and those ranchers and farmers had a real understanding of the, the world, uh, of the earth, of what it took, of the soil systems, of the symbiotic relationships between people and the earth and all of its um, inhabitants that provide for us. Um, since that time, since 1948, uh, we enabled a system called the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Natural Resources, actually at that time it was called the Conservation of Nature, uh, was formed in 1948, and this allowed us uh, an ability to categorize and and strategize toward the conservation of our world's natural environment and biodiversity. Uh, the IUCN developed the Protected Area Management Categories, uh, a system used to define, record, and classify the wide variety of specific uh, species and aims and concerns of environmental uh, protection and species protection, including the IUCN Red List, which you can go online and learn more about the IUCN and the Red List. And the Red List is responsible for listing those species, whether it be plant or animal, fauna or flora, uh, that are threatened, endangered, and uh, going down the tubes. So uh, I've talked recently about more and more species being listed on the IUCN red list. And this is something everybody should take a look at. Um, It's not always the megafauna and the megaflora that is disappearing rapidly. Those are the um, indicator species uh, that we look at that when they disappear uh, or are threatened or endangered, they're the keystones of a much larger picture, the biota that depends on these keystone and apex species and everything that works within them. Um, It's been since, oh, the last 20 to 30 years that we've changed the model of conservation from protectionism and setting aside large landscapes and removing the first peoples to a more um, top-down approach uh, There's some wonderful material out there, research to read, um, a variety of books, and I'll list a few of those at the end of the show um, where I get a lot of my information and I'm a a voracious reader and without reading and keeping up on the changing of times, then it's very difficult to understand where we need to go. So... um, throughout, let me back up a minute because I lost my my point there, but um, in the 1800s through to the 1940s and 50s, there was a tremendous political will and popular pressure toward a conservation ethic, that which Aldo Leopold had uh, mentioned back in the 1940s and had written about for many years. And... uh, From the ranchers and the aristocrats to hunters alike, it was spurred on by the spirit of exploration and discovery. Uh, We all are familiar with the tales and adventures of Lewis and Clark or David Livingstone and Henry Morton Stanley or more recently uh, John Muir, Aldo Leopold and the extolling of the virtues of natures. um, In the poems and writings of Henry Thoreau and Walden, Uh, these are the fathers of our modern conservation ethic and model. Versus the protectionism and setting aside for oh either hunters or elitist uh, needs and uh, which first started in terms of species uh, survival, the big game that we call game in terms of hunting, it was utilized so um, back in the forties and the fifties when we set aside and created this conservation model of protecting uh, the biota our 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 species, our biodiversity, that seems, um, it, that was a hard concept to catch on. Uh, so when the IUCN, originally named as the Conservation of Nature, changed its name to the Conservation of Natural Resources, uh, there's a real big key difference between nature and natural resources, the, That those titles, those words in a title. Nature in uh, c- consumes the, environment it's, it's ethereal. It's sort of intangible. It's that which surrounds us. Natural resources uh, hold the concept of a tangible economic benefit. When we changed over from nature to natural resources and tying it to an economic benefit, we lost uh, a lot of what conservation meant. Uh, A lot of what conservation needed to keep this land ethic going, this public good, this common ground, Uh, and I mean that literally, that we all used to survive. Um this model often excluded the history of the Aboriginals or the First Peoples, as they're now to be known. And in the current conservation lexicon, in the lands of being so-called discovered, uh, First Peoples and Aboriginals are a big part of the newer model of conservation, which took over in the late 90s, or let's say by the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there was a huge shift in how conservation uh, needed to approach Uh, those places that they wanted to conserve and those people who lived there. In uh, the early, let's see, I think it was 1995 that Mark Dowie, who was the originator of Mother Earth News and uh, a writer for Orion Magazine and Range, he's a fabulous investigative uh, journalist, conservation environment. Uh, He wrote uh, Losing Ground, which was an overview of the last... 50 to 100 years of conservation, mostly in the U.S. and of the environmental quote-unquote movement. We started out in the 50s and 60s from this concept of a land ethic and Aldo Leopold and John Muir and Walden that uh, we needed to protect this, that we needed to conserve this, and what happened what happened with this springing forward of the environmental movement to where we got to in the 70s 80s and 90s uh, it changed a lot it went from this ethic of and spirituality that our biota and our resources were there to be preserved because they are there and they have the right to exist to an economic incentive so after the break we're going to come back and discuss this a little bit and we've talked about it a bit before in terms of the economics of conservation and uh, a lot of comments in that there's the aesthetic of conservation which one will ultimately win out and which one do we need as people to make conservation happen moving forward is it going to be an economic benefit and an economic reason or is it going to be an aesthetic reason that we keep our earth alive and our wild world going so uh i would look forward to having you call in at one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight, or you can send me an email at w-i-l-d-i-z-e at org. i'd love to hear your comments or some of your thoughts about where we're going as we go into 2013 and beyond about our wild world
1: w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot
0: streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com
1: you're listening to ellie weiss and our wild world
2: Welcome back. And today we're talking about, um, on the eve of a new year, some of the history of where conservation has been, um, and where it's going. Um, I'm gonna us through back and forth through history um, of the last hundred years um, to today and where I would like to hope and uh, see where we're going in the future and how all of us can uh, become involved in this land ethic that was first created and um, stated as such by Aldo Leopold back in the 1940s. Um, oftentimes throughout history, at least our last 50 to 100 years of conservation history, um, the history of the land by the first peoples, those people who first inhabited it, whether it be the Native Americans or the Australian Aboriginals or the African tribes, um, is an oral history. Uh, These places did exist before our great explorers so-called discovered them. They discovered them for the West, but they had already been discovered and had been used and been uh, conserved and worked in by the people who lived there for a really long time before the first white people Arrived. Um, so a lot of our history, our conservation history, is a colonial or neocolonial history of the land. It often excludes the history uh, and this oral history by the First Peoples or the Natives that lived there for thousands of years. Um, the Native Americans lived here in the U.S. for at least 11,000 years before Yosemite was created, a park in 1890. There was the Royal National Park, the second national park ever to be made in the world in 1879. Um, It was largely inhabited by Aboriginals and it also created the spiritual and aesthetic uh, sensation or um, concept of what the land means to people. Uh, The Aboriginal dream time, the uh, religious, the shamanism, it's all connected to spirituality in the land. All our um, pre-Christian uh, religions deal with paganism or animism and totems which highlighted the spirituality and connectivity to the animals that lived on the land the power of these resources and people would pray to them to um, protect them and to provide for them the Native Americans and the Aboriginals and Africans are major cases in point um, today we don't have much of that oral history written down because of uh, we keep in the emerging worlds, uh, it's not to the point yet where um, the educational and the access and the idea of writing down this history is is as important as it's been for our exploration history. Um, but we are listening to these oral histories, and now conservation is beginning to listen to these oral histories. We're beginning to understand the fact that without people um, over our recent several millennia, as long as people have been on the planet, um, from uh, the caveman to today, that humans have impacted the world around them. Uh, It's only recently, since the 1950s to today, that our population has increased to such an extent that we have a much larger impact on our nature. The caveman uh, or Neanderthal had a reason to fear nature and to respect its power and its force and put it into its religion uh, because it was not an understood quantity. They were at the whim and... Uh, Effect of everything that nature did to them in terms of providing for their resources, their food, and their survival. Today, we're a lot more isolated from nature in our our homes, our cities, our towns, and um, we have a very different look at what provides for us today. Today, it's the store that provides for us. It's we don't often link that to uh, the nature that comes. Uh, the living animals, the other species that we need to survive. Um, so this history, if you start looking in and researching the oral history of the first peoples, there's a lot to be said about a land ethics. So where did we lose this? Where did it start to shift? It shifted when we needed to create an economic benefit, uh, to, and, and that I've talked about in our, our previous shows that, um, when we shifted to the conservation, the economics of conservation, that it has to benefit people, that wildlife must pay for itself, that hunting and management tools and all of this pays for conservation, uh, the same as ivory may pay for conservation. Uh, what's changed is, um, us. How, how do we want to look at this planet? Why must wildlife and the other species, uh, pay for itself uh, when we're not really part of that Equation. At least, I don't think we've put ourselves in to that equation. Are we paying for ourselves? Are we paying for the changes we've made to our earth and our systems? Uh, we're definitely paying for it now in terms of climate change, climate shifts, uh, increased storms. I watched an interesting show on the Weather Channel that 2012, 2012 the year out of season, uh, which highlighted all the uh, intense storms, um, let's take it back to Katrina. Um, There are many experts now who are definitely coming out and saying that our severe weather is certainly linked to climate change. I, for one, uh, understand that this is a fact. Climate is not static. It's always changing, but it's the tremendous rapidity of the change over the last 50 years that we really need to concern ourselves with and it's over the last 50 years that we people we humans have had such a huge impact Um, not all this impact is bad our uh, technological advances have allowed us to understand and research uh, so much more in terms of uh, wildlife, uh, the biota, uh, the those systems, plants, and animals that are out there, and the benefits and the niche that they fill in our web of life. But at the same time, it's disappearing a bit faster than we are able to um, understand its purpose so as our human population increases and uh as a result of our increased understanding of ecology um erosion land use uh desertification deforestation what what these systems do for our entire planet from the oceans to cloud factors um it's a model of conservation and created the basis of most modern conservation models until the late 1990s, which is when we started including the first peoples. Um, uh, the the model of exclusion seriously be- began to be questioned about then because we started to realize as we kicked these people out of their native lands and started manipulating and managing our conservation uh, areas, our protected areas, that it wasn't necessarily working. Take Yellowstone Park as an example. Um, we extirpated wolves and a lot of our large predators um, by the early 1900s in the competition for the resources and understanding or in terms of protecting our livestock, uh, introduced species, domestic species. So by the t- 1920s, 60s, wolves were gone. By the 19, 19- 30s and 40s, Yellowstone National Park started to decline and people were wondering why. We had erosion. We had, uh, riverine and riparian habitat being lost. We had deer and elk overrunning. We were losing the, the, the forests, the Aspen Forest, and the park was looking more like what we think of as parkland, low tree, clumps of trees, grasslands, open spaces, and we were losing a lot of the biota diversity in these areas. So lo and behold, the wolves are reintroduced in 1972, and in the last 30 years, look what's happened. The park has come back. Uh, you can read uh, Dr. R- uh, Robert Beschta and Dr. William Ripple's uh, work on the ecology of five different national parks in the U.S. and only one of those has had wolves reintroduced. And you can cons- you can get a good understanding of what is coming back in Yellowstone. The riparian ways are working. The forests are regrowing. We have age groups of trees that are filling in the gaps. And we have what I've talked about before, an ecology of fear happening back into the um, ungulate population because now they've got a predator, the wolf, and uh, how that changes how they use their, their habitat. So when we have a functioning system, um, predators included, I'm, I'm a proponent of our predators, if you haven't figured that out over the last several shows, um, I work very hard in conserving, WildEyes works very hard toward conserving our carnivores and our predators, our apex and keystone species. They're critical to our habitats. Um, They're critical to keeping this web functioning, these trophic levels and these trophic cascades that are our planet. They keep them working, and that goes back to this top-down approach to conservation as opposed to the bottom-up that was originally... um, The basis of conservation model back in the early days. Um, It's uh, been since the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s that we started getting this top-down approach, looking at what happens when you remove an apex predator or a keystone species from the landscape. What happens to everything around it? Uh, You could use the term under it or below it. prefer to just say, what happens to the interconnectedness when you remove a top species, a top predator, a top carnivore, whether it's a starfish, a wolf, or a lion? What happens to our world? And that's what's been going on for the last 20 to 50 years. We're losing our top predators. And look at the world we're left with. Look at our wild world. It's changing. There's a lot of material out there that you can understand. One of the things we need to understand is that we don't have to lose all of this. We're at a point where we can turn things around. We will lose some species. It's uh, unavoidable. It's it's, uh, it's undoubtedly going to happen. We're going to lose some things, but we don't have to lose it all. And... When I say we, I mean each of us. Each of us can participate in the kind of world we want to have moving forward. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about the history of uh, conservation, where it's been and where it's going. If you'd like to call in one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight, or send me an email at at wildize.org. I'd love to have a conservation conversation with you. We'll be right back after the
0: break.
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
2: Hi, and we're back again taking a little stroll through history of conservation and where we're going to be going. Um, Back as early as the 1930s and 40s with Aldo Leopold and uh, John Muir and Walden, uh, who created such a concept of stewardship and land ethic, conservation has since created many fundamental strategies to help protect, to formalize uh, and create government uh, actionable items to protect our species and our environment, our biota. Uh, The IUCN, the International Union of Conservation of Nature, the Endangered Species Act, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, more recently the Species Survival Plans, and then as I talked about, the IUCN Red List. And then we've got our governmental organizations, such as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the Ministry of Forestry, um, and then our wildlife services. But our wildlife services is a, a bit in a different school. Um, it has a different function i 'm not sure a lot of us actually I know I for one, when I first heard about okay or the the, the u s Fish and Wildlife Service or the u s Forestry Service, I sort of automatically assumed that these organizations uh, government agencies were there to protect uh, our forest and to protect our wildlife and species, but actually, they were set up in terms of government agencies to uh, once again uh, work toward the economic benefit of what these resources provided. And a lot of times they were guided by special interests. Going back to Aldo Leopold and John Muir, their whole concept of this land ethic was that no single um, specific Our special interest would guide our conservation policies. But for many years, it did, even in our national parks. The National Park Service was geared toward creating a place, let's say Yellowstone, that people could enjoy, that was an area for entertainment so that people could um, get out in nature, yes, enjoy it. It was set aside, preserved, and protected. But the management of the area was geared toward exploitation. And a lot of our conservation policies have been geared um, and formulated around exploitation from the early colonial policies. Um, Back up until the 1960s in Belgium, uh, uh, King Leopold, he uh, was the last of the great... I'm not great I'm not great in terms of fabulous but big colonialist uh uh agencies and uh, the destruction of the Congo for rubber so when the colonialists left and independence happened what was left with a lot of the countries in Africa was um a A value system of exploitation, a value system of economic benefit as opposed to a value system of protection, which was happening here in the U.S. As we went about um, losing a lot of our environment and changing and reshaping our environment, we started creating systems of protection, conservation. But we were not implementing that in the colonies, so to speak. And even up until the 1960s, the U.S. backed King Leopold in terms of – Uh, his continued exploitation of the rubber industry in Congo. There's an excellent book uh, about that called um, by Adam Hochschild, The King Leopold's Ghost. Fabulous book. Reads like a a thriller novel. Uh, As we get towards uh, a little later in the show, I'm going to mention some other incredible books. Uh, What I do is I read. I think everybody should be reading and We've talked uh, over previous shows, this disconnection from our our systems, from our earth. Uh, the way to stay involved and stay connected is read. Um, get into a good book. Uh, that's where all the research, the information, uh, everything we've learned ends up being put down. It's not all just on the internet. There is a lot on the internet. Um, you can find out a lot of information there. Wikipedia is a great source, but that doesn't replace good research. It doesn't replace a good book, a, a consolidated effort to understand a specific subject and some the huge strides that have been happening in conservation over the past 100 and um, more recently the past twenty, ten, and 5 years in conservation and where we're going to go Um so as we head into almost the half mark, um, okay, quarter mark of this new century, what do we want to be? What do we? What kind of planet do we want to have? Um, so despite nearly a century of, I'm going to call it propaganda, conservation propaganda, conservation still proceeds at a snail's pace. Progress still consists l- largely of um, letterhead. Headlines and conventional oratory. On uh, the back forty, it, we still slip. Uh, we're still losing species, and that's a paraphrase of Aldo Leopold in 1948. The usual answer today to this dilemma is more conservation education. Uh, there's a huge uh, stride, zoos from zoos to conservation to the big international conservation organizations, as Mark Derry calls them, the Bingos, uh, to increase the conservation education. So where is that happening? Is it happening to us here who in the Western world who have the luxury, the affordability, and the economic incentive to protect uh, the rest of the world? Or is it happening on the ground where the first peoples and native peoples are having to live with it? It's a bit of both. Um, But my question is, is, um, there's no debate that we need more conservation education. So what we've been working on is the volume of conservation education. Uh, if you go to college now, you can study any number of biological sciences, conservation sciences, environmental sciences, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and get involved. But what we need is perhaps to up, step up the content. Of our environmental and conservation education, um, I think our content is sorely lacking. Um, it seems uh, the typical content is okay, obey the obey the law, vote right, um, join some organizations, give some money, and practice what conservation you can in your daily life. Um, that is works for you, or that is profitable on your own land, and perhaps the government uh, and National or uh, non-governmental organizations will do the rest. Well this doesn't work, folks. Um, we all have to step up and take a little responsibility because this particular content, it defines no right or wrong, and it assigns no obligations or responsibilities. It doesn't call for sacrifice and it implies no change to the current philosophy of what our values are. So we're at this paradigm shift and I've talked about this before. Um, what And I'd say the core of this is what is our philosophy of value um, during some previous episodes I talked about the economics of conservation. We had um, uh, Dr. Mark Vanderwall and Dr. Kathy Alexander on talking about aesthetics and um, that brought up quite a bit of uh, comments. But I think our conservation of the future is going to have to be a bit more two-thirds aesthetics and one-third economics. Um, I don't think Exploiting and basing all our conservation models simply on the economic benefit to people, whether it be um, the nonprofit or the government agency or the local person who must live with uh predatory wildlife, who loses livestock. I don't think economic incentive is the only way to go. If you look through the past 20 years of African conservation dealing with lions and livestock conflict, there have been compensation schemes uh, to uh, compensate uh, pastoralists who have lost uh, livestock to lions, but it continues to happen. Lions continue to be killed. Uh, last week, uh, the last couple of weeks, I mentioned some of the projects that Wild Eyes is involved in to mitigate this conflict on a different level, using our environment and working with wildlife. The conditioned taste aversion, uh, tapping into scientific research uh, that works in mammalian responses. Uh, it's a hardwired mammalian response to protecting yourself from eating something toxic. We all have this response. So as we move forward with so much scientific um, research and uh, knowledge and more understanding of not only how a specific species functions, but how it functions in its habitat, the more we can revolve our conservation agenda around the aesthetics and the need of this biota to exist for its own right, um, with or without our enjoyment, our uh, economic benefit, or um, its relationship to us. Um, I'm one of those people, and many conservation, I'm sure many of you out there, uh, this paradigm shift is we need to protect our environment and our earth Just because. That's the easiest way I can say it. Just because. It's not always going to provide an economic benefit. But if we lose all of this, especially our wildness and our wild spaces and our open spaces, not managed parks, but our open spaces where people don't live on the whole or where native peoples live, if we lose these spaces, what will that do to us? What will that do to our psyche, our humanity? Is that the the legacy we want to leave behind. So it goes back to Alda Leopold in 1948 and a land ethic. I think this is what we need to be teaching. Um, in our schools, in our our content of conservation education, whether it be a zoo or a national park. We need to teach a land ethic. We need to absorb and take on a land ethic. Each and every one of us is a steward of the spot we stand on and uh, how that spot is connected to everything else around us. Um, So let's Let's find ways to increase this concept of a land ethic. I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can call in at 1-866-472-5788 or send me an email at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. Or you can join the conversation. We have uh, an interesting discussion going on at LinkedIn under African Conservation Professionals. Uh, it's a monitored group. You can join us on Facebook, uh, iRadio blog, and um, the Wild Eyes website blog news and blog. Um, Visit our website www.wildeyes.org. Learn more about what we're doing and uh, I'd love to hear from you and uh, discuss conservation and have a conversation about what it is you, the public, Jane and Joe and John and Susie out there want to see for your future, your children's future. Um, it's, it's difficult to say our world hasn't changed. Um, and it's easy to sit there and say, oh, it has changed and, um, somebody's going to do something about it. But who is that person? Who is that somebody? Who is they? We've talked about this before. They is us. We are the people who are we've been waiting for. We're the people who are going to make a change. Um, we're the people who are going to have to live on this earth moving forward and um, the results of what we do now will impact not only um, what's been going on but what happens in the future. So give a call in, send me an email and we'll be back after the break.
0: stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really
1: fast. All the
0: time, the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
2: there we've been talking about conservation through the ages and on this eve of a new year um, I'm asking, what can we do? I know what Wild Eyes is doing. I work my butt off to um, make a difference in terms of what's happening, not only here in the U.S. with this radio show and hopefully um, enlightening or providing some information that uh, our listeners weren't aware of. Um, you're welcome to call in at 1-866-472-5788. I'd love to have a conversation with you, or if you have a question, if I can answer it, or um, find the answer um, but moving forward we, we, have, we are living in a time where this con- concept of a land ethic is more important than eff- ever. Um, in the past recent history of conservation, it's been tied uh, and governed wholly by economic self-interest, whether it be the ranchers and the farmers um, or our governmental uh, institutions. Uh, it's based on an economic and self-interest, whether it be wildlife conservation in Africa or land conservation and preservation here, such as organizations as the Nature Conservancy um, that Uh, purchases land to set aside uh, for conservation easements. There are a lot of people now who are incorporating the concept of a conservation easement into their land use uh, value system and uh, estate and passing it on to future generations. But each of us, even if you live in a, a steel and concrete and glass structure, a very nice one or a not so nice one in the urban area, We still have to create a land ethic. Uh, If we lose the land, there's not much else left, is there? Um, Human beings can certainly live in space. We can live in a vacuum, but um, it would be a sad, sad, sorry state of affairs if we lost that which makes um, our planet so diverse, that which makes uh, the rest of us survive. So uh, an economic self-interest is not the only basis to create a conservation policy and a land ethics system, Um, which with economic motives, in reality, most members of the land community have no economic value. Wildflowers and songbirds are examples. Billions of plants and animals native to our earth is a small percentage, there's a small, small percentage that can be sold, fed, eaten, or otherwise put to economic use. Yet these creatures and other earthlings we share our planet with are members of the same biotic community that we are uh, members of. And I believe its stability depends on its integrity. And they are entitled to continuance. And that is the concept of an aesthetic. Entitled to a continuance. The rest of life on earth is entitled to the same continuance of existence that we are. And if we don't get around to creating a a broad scope base defined of... name it outline it a land ethic of what what it is we want to conserve that there are so many organizations out there doing and conserving so many specific things but without this all inclusive ethic of our earth deserves to exist as much as we do, then where are we going to go in the future? We're going to start losing this stuff at uh, an unprecedented rate, which we're already losing. Um, but as I said before, we don't have to lose it all. We can take a stand. We can uh, decide, each and every one of us, what it is that's important. Step out of our 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 world and the chaos of our minds and our singular um, Problems and look at how it's all connected. Um, I talked about this before. We need to look at this paradigm shift that is happening, and I am delighted and thrilled to see it happening, uh, especially in the youth. This, this concern over our, our planet and its resources, not just economically, but as an aesthetic, uh, to live by. Um, that it is changing, but we need to, get together and decide what it is we want to do and um, understand that the other beings we live with have just as much right to live and continue as we do. And it's only in more recent years, more like 19. from the 1970s on, that um, we're hearing the more honest argument that predators are really members of our community. Um, I talked before about wolves being extirpated in the early 1900s. We're going out on a campaign to extirpate mountain lions. They were uh, removed from the continental United States by the 1960s. And it's only recently that they start coming back and a lot of people are up in arms, uh, as we hear stories about the, um, what happens when mountain lion habitat or bear habitat o- overlaps with human habitat, those conflicts that are bound to arrive as we blur the boundaries between what was wild land and urban areas or sub uh, suburban and rural areas. Um, we're changing the landscape, um, but it's, it's interesting also that in the last 20 years, we're having a whole lot more research, the upside to this conservation land ethic and understanding that um, the aesthetic of everything else on us, we're having much more research. Mark Beckhoff is an example in terms of animal behavior and animal ethology. Um, the understanding that we are not the only emotional beings on this planet, that much of our wildlife has an emotional life. Um, we relate that directly to our pets, our domestic animals. Who doesn't love their dog and or their cat and who doesn't think their dog or cat loves them back? Okay, maybe cats not what 's the old joke? Dogs have owners, cats have staff. I have four cats, and I sometimes realize that they live on their own they they live independent independently of me. That was a little segue, but we all know that our our pets love us and we love our pets let 's expand that concept to the rest of the earthlings on our planet, the other beings, whether we have a Interface with them directly or not, or we want to just enjoy them, uh, is, is, as- like going on safari and seeing wildlife, but we have to understand that this wildlife is not there for our entertainment. Uh, TV and uh, our technology has turned wildlife into entertainment. Um, once again, geared toward that economic benefit, ratings, selling advertising. Um, we all get to enjoy these wildlife documentaries, but what is it really doing for wildlife? Is it really translating to making a difference? It's certainly part of that Uh, environmental education we talked about and certainly part of the content of education. At the end of the shows, there's usually some sort of a line saying, oh, uh, these species are losing. We have to care. But if we say that for the last three minutes of a show, we're not getting the point across. The point is we need to care about all of these species and we need to uh, participate. And a lot of the ways today you can participate in our busy world is to give, uh, to give to the organization of your choice that fulfills your passion to protect a species or protect an area or help a community um, because you care. Turn that care into some action. And as much as I would like to think that it is not all about economics, economics are going to make things happen. So, but... By giving economically, philanthropically, altruistically, giving to an organization of your choice, such as Wild Eyes Foundation, I had to get that in there, then organizations such as Wild Eyes and our governmental organizations and the other non-governmental organizations out there can make a difference. We can move things forward with your help. So um, I guess my question on the eve of our new year is how much of our land ethic has changed since 19- 1948. Uh, are we getting closer to understanding stewardship as we face the dramatic and mostly human-induced shifts and losses in our resources? Are we getting closer to admitting that other species species we share our earth with are uh, should continue as a biotic right, regardless of the presence or absence or economic advantage to us? Um, I'd like to hear from you. So as you Move into 2013 in this new year. Think about our wild world and your place in it, our place in it, the human place in our wild world, and what we can do to make that more symbiotic, to make that, to use an almost overused word, harmonious. Um, I'm not sure that we'll ever live completely in harmony with the planet, but uh, I'm not sure that humanity is geared towards that. But we can certainly live symbiotically and understand the impacts that we have on our earth and the importance that our earth provides for us and not just talk about it but do something about it so until next time and i'll see you next year go out and step into our wild world enjoy what you see if you don't like what you see then help us change it and happy new year